<clears throat> Morning, everybody. <clears throat> How many of you have ever heard or uh, maybe sung that that last song? Anybody ever heard of that? Well, your chances of going to heaven are really... <laughs> that's a good Charles Wesley hymn. Um, let me just add to what... Um, Joe said, and then Tanner, um, about FCA. I think we have a real healthy, it's somewhat new, but a healthy FCA program here in our community and others. And I think they're just doing a marvelous job. So however much we can support them, and even I'm not certain of the exact dollar each month, but to increase it wouldn't bother me at all. Um, we benefit from it. And I'm grateful that Dan and Tanner are, um, they're often gone. Now the story is that they're at FCA. Uh, who really knows? But. I'm faithful. I'm here and the office staff serving the Lord. Um, those guys are out eating pizza. Listen, that's so valuable and they're touching base with our own kids. Um, I just think it's a wonderful program. So for whatever that little additional plug um, is, <clears throat> oh, I won't get off into missiology, which is the whole theology of missions. But as our own culture collapses morally, I just feel, not that I don't care about the rest of the world and that we shouldn't support them, we do. But we got a lot of holes to plug here. Um, and they're getting worse. So anyway, um, please that we can be a part of that. <clears throat> If you have your Bibles, there are two scriptures that I want us to, to um, look at this morning. I'll just read them um, and <clears throat> refer to them uh, later. Romans 8, 6. Now this is in the middle of a discussion. Paul's dealing really in the whole book of Romans in the first portion he deals with the sinfulness of the human race, and then he moves on to being justified by faith. Um, carries as Paul's pattern always is. He then ends up toward the end of the book, how should we then live these various truths and the atonement and its accomplishments in renovating our hearts? How should we then live? That's a pattern Paul uses in all of his letters so also in Romans. In the 8th chapter, well, let me go, did not get too far in the weeds, except just to say this. Starting in 512, chapter 5, verse 12. You don't need to go there, necessarily. But Paul begins to speak about the sin. He's talking about sinning and sins prior to that and forgiveness of sins, and so forth. 5.12, on through, I think it's 8.25, but don't hold me to that last one. 28 or 29 times. 
he speaks about the sin. It has the article, the. It's the sinful nature. He's not talking about sinning specifically. Yes, he refers to it. But primarily, he's talking about an inherited bent to sinning, to self-sovereignty, to unbelief, to rebellion against the law of God and what God proposes to do about it. Just one reference in the 8th chapter to a description or a diagnosis, a definition of what the sinful nature is. In the 6th verse of chapter 8, the mind of sinful man. Now, I'm reading from the an older New International Version. Earlier in the verses, he continually refers to the sinful nature. Here, it's the mind of sinful man. The word mind here doesn't just mean brain or something. Some versions will translate it attitude. That's not a good enough, that's not a strong enough word. The word mind here means a set of the sails, the grain of my life. It's the direction, and it's a deep direction. It's an inclination, a proneness. I think it was last Sunday, hymn Sunday, we sang whatever hymn, Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Proneness is, is another word for mind here. It's an, it's an inclination. So the sinful mind, Paul says, is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind or the sinful nature, which he interchangeably uses, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. He's not speaking lastly here of people in whose heart the sinful nature still remains. That would mean no Christian could please God. But those controlled by it, living according to to it, under its complete dominion, can't please God. The very next verse, though, he says, but we're not, the next verses, we're not controlled by the sinful nature. So we do please God. Colossians is a second passage. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Writing to the Colossians, Paul says in verse 6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition, and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. <clears throat> he forgave all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Now, <clears throat> quick note, this letter to the Colossians. They were veering aside from the simplicity of Jesus and the simplicity of the gospel, tainted with human philosophy and so forth. And uh, we don't need to get into this, but in the early church, <clears throat> that became a growing problem. Teachings of Plato, Aristotle, began to be mingled with the gospel in, I think in the beginning, a well-meaning attempt by Christians to try to explain the gospel to the world who did understand the Greek philosophers and so forth. But it ended up that every time we try to wed ourselves to something in the world, the world always ends up devaluing, uh, hollowing out what we're trying to teach. The, God, the gospel is fine by itself. God does pretty well when he's left to himself. Now, what I want us to look at, there's so much scripture, but obviously we can't read all of it. I just want to take a little time here on God's strategy against the sinful nature. Now let me say this. The sinful nature, that bent to sinning, that proneness, to rebellion, everybody, and I mean this, everybody except a very, very, very few heretics, and I'm talking about official heretics, that the early church, Middle Ages, declared to be heretics. Everybody preaches, teaches, believes, and can usually demonstrate that we are born with a bent to sinning. I don't care if we like it. I don't care if it's, you know, man, I don't want to hear that kind of stuff. It's a fact. It is a molding, dominating factor in our lives unless, until God deals with it decisively. It is... I. I it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We don't have to, I've said this before, we don't have to have little field trips here in the sanctuary where, you know, like the little kids I'll see down by, you, you go down Lakeway and you see the little kids from Paintbrush or whoever and they're all holding a little rope and they're walking on the sidewalk going on a little field trip. We don't have to do that here and go back to the nursery. 
and be stunned at watching kids back there fight over toys, scream, clench their fists, turn red in their face. Do we? Man, I don't know. I've never seen that. Yeah, we've seen it. The world recognizes it. In fact, the world, the world has come up with something different than God. Now, God calls it sin, calls it a sinful nature. Um, have you heard of ODD? ODD is oppositional defiant disorder. That's a, that is an official psychological diagnosis of a condition, oppositional defiant disorder in children. In its advanced stages, it goes by initials B-R-A-T. <laughs> That's what it is. We will not, we will not bring ourselves to let God diagnose what's the matter with us. And I know these are extreme cases, but my goodness, every one of us here, we watch the news, shake our heads. How could conscienceless people do these kinds of things? It's a sinful nature. Now, let me say this. Our lives and that bent that we're all born with can be heavily affected by, in addition to that, poor upbringing, terrible treatment from parents and whoever, and it can be fractured worse. But at the core, that's our problem as a human race. We're bent to self. Here's a definition, a lot of definitions of the sinful nature. But I think a good one, simple one, is excessive love of self. Meaning, I love my opinions. I want my way. I want God even to kowtow to please me. I demand of everyone around me, including God, that they serve me. They give me what I want. They grant me my requests. They acknowledge my rights. And my rights, we're heavily into this as we continue to fall away from God and Western civilization. We're into an unworkable, unsustainable situation where my rights trump all of yours. Meanwhile, you're saying your rights trump everybody else's. You take 350 million people in our country, all of whom believe their rights trump everybody else's rights, we have a problem. That's where we're at. But that's the sinful nature. I want what I want, when I want it, and in its worst form, even in the church world, God's obligated to do that for me. He's my step and fetch it boy. Ultimately, the sinful nature will make God 
our servant. Because we have moved into his place. So what's God's strategy to deal with this? This is the core of the gospel. This is God's got to fix the sin issue. First of all, there are, just, there are three strategies. Obviously, this isn't going to cover everything. But one, <clears throat> curb it in a child. Two, conquer it in conversion. Three, crucify it. The baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's God's strategy. Now, first, curb it in the child. I'm never talking about abuse. I'm not talking about harsh, cruel. I'm talking about the nurture and admonition of the Lord that we're to be brought up in. But the carnal mind is another term the Bible uses, translators use, is described as lawlessness. It is not subject, we just read. It's not subject to God's law and never will be. That's why the presence of that in our hearts, which James calls being double-minded, stunts spiritual growth. Well, we we'll just grow more. There's a point at which that drag inhibits spiritual growth. It did with the disciples. They walked with Jesus for three years. They saw things that we would dream to see. They experienced and heard things. And after three years of walking with Jesus, Jesus so frequently had to point out to them, near the end of three years of watching him love, love and hug and take children into his arms and show mercy to um, the outcasts, and the adulterers, and all of that. James and John, when he sent everybody out to witness, to preach, and a city didn't receive them. So, get, you know, get out. We don't want to hear about that. And so, <laughs> James and John, you know, eagerly asked Jesus, and I'm sure they were almost shifting back and forth on their feet, and they were just really, shall we call fire down on them? Shall we kill them all? <laughs> Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man didn't come to kill people. He came to save us. But his words, you don't know what spirit you're of. There's a spirit within you you don't even recognize that's not Christ-like. Now, so I'm not talking. I'm not talking about brutality. I'm not, but we have to curb that bent in the child. What am I doing as a parent? I am, as a Christian parent, and hopefully even non-believers, but recognize that just for good citizenship, I've got to, I have to curb that don't tell me what to do-ism in the heart. I have to. Partly what I'm doing 
is allowing a person to be able to function in the world. But ultimately what I'm doing, I'm preparing that child's heart to hear God's voice and to heed it. I'm not going to get way off the track here, hopefully. But I've watched a lot of people, and of course, I made no mistakes as a parent, ever. So I can say all this. Um, I used to preach the best sermons I've ever preached <clears throat> on child raising. This, I'm embarrassed to say, and it's flat absurd. But the best sermons I ever preached on raising kids were when I was in seminary, and I didn't have any kids. And so I'd get up in front of in this little student pastor that I had, the 40 people that, you know, I guess didn't have anything else to do, so they came out for amusement. And I'd really tell them how to raise kids. What a dunce! <clears throat> you find out it's not quite so easy as the books tell us. But, nevertheless, we're preparing our children to hear God's voice. And I want this to sound right. God's not an ogre. He's not hard to get along with. God's kind and good and faithful. But there are many times in our lives as Christians that we obey God. Why? Not because he bargained with us like I see a lot of parents doing. Now if you'll do this, okay, well, oh, okay, I'll take you for ice cream if you just do that. No. There's a point of you do it because I said so. That's enough. God expects to be obeyed because he said so. That's good enough. Not long ago I read Amaziah. Quite a subject to study. King Amaziah, Judah. Scripture says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart, not with a loyal heart, not with an undivided heart. And so, without getting into all the details, he's the king of Judah. The split between Israel and Judah has already happened. And the northern tribe of Israel had gone totally to idolatry and they were far away from God and God had just pushed them away. Well, they had a war with the Edomites. And so Judah... Amaziah and Judah figured our army is not quite big enough and to go after these Edomites. So let, let's hire 100,000 soldiers from Israel for, I can't remember, I think it was 100 talents of silver. That's a fairly good amount of money. And so a prophet came to Amaziah and he says, you can go ahead and fight the Edomites, but you take those 100,000 Israelites with you. God won't go with you because he's had it with him. He won't go with you. That was the word of the Lord. How did this divided heart king, Amaziah, respond? Not, if this is the will of God, okay. It was, what do we do about the money? What about that 100,000 talents of silver that I gave? What about that? The prophet says to him, God's able to give you much more than this. When he heard that, in other words, I get my way, then he says, oh, okay, we'll send him home. 
that's what a lot of parents are producing when they bargain with the kids, try to induce them. There comes a point in time when I do it because they said so. God spoke, that's it. It's done. Do it. Curb it in the child. I don't mean to say this is not impossible for the next two steps to be accomplished. But it's far less likely if parents haven't adequately trained their children to listen to God's voice. Now, I'm not factoring out a free will. We can raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they can go astray. Yes, we'll make mistakes as parents, but ultimately they'll answer for their own choices. And lest, lest we think, and I know Christian parents, some grieve over their children that are wayward and beat themselves to death with the with the wonderful help of the devil. You were a lousy parent, and if you hadn't have done this, and if you would have done that, the kids wouldn't have turned. No. Don't forget this verse. God said in Isaiah, first chapter, I, God, I have raised up children, and they've rebelled against me. Now, he's a pretty good parent. Okay? He didn't make any mistakes. He didn't have to come to kids, which all of us, I think, have done. Listen, I was too hard on you, disciplined you. I didn't realize the whole thing, or I just was too frustrated with you. I'm sorry. He didn't ever have to do that. But they still rebelled. They had perfection as a parent, heavenly parent. They sinned. They rebelled. They threw his yoke off of them. Children have a free will, but I've got to do everything I can as a parent to teach them obedience to this authority delegated from God so that when they hear God's voice, they're inclined to recognize it and obey it. Second thing, <clears throat> the scriptures that we read and many others talk about being raised from the dead spiritually, being forgiven of our sins, and made anew in Jesus in our hearts, yet we still have the sinful nature. Now there is, there's only one little tiny group of people that were there's one heretic in the 400s called Pelagius that came up with the notion that we aren't born with a sinful nature. Well, the entire Christian church voted him as a heretic and banished him. Okay? Nobody with a Bible who's ever read it or watched society and children and people in general, nobody believes we're not born with a sinful nature. There's a second thing. There's only one little tiny group in the 1700s following a guy named Count Zinzendorf. Okay? It's on the tip of all of our tongues, I'm sure. He taught 
that there is no sinful nature remaining after conversion. Both our sins are forgiven and the sinful nature is taken away when we are saved. Nobody believes that. And he was roundly hit for that. I have gone through, and years ago, I'm sure every one of you remember it, probably 10 years ago, I had a whole bunch of statements on the sinful nature and conversion from all kinds of different denominations. A lot of different kinds of terms and different ways to express it. But there is nobody in all of Christendom who believes that a converted person, even with wildly differing definitions of what conversion means, there isn't anybody that believes there isn't still subdued, no longer dominant, but its presence is there. Still an undertow of prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. An undertow of self-sovereignty. And it is periodically, episodically, comes to head-butting with God. Paul describes the anguish, really, of his own heart all through 6 and 7 and 8. And he says, I delight after the, the word of God and the law of God and the will of God. But I find, he said, something in me that keeps me from doing what I wish to do. What I wish to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Now, what is he talking about there? Is he talking about, I don't want to cook meth in the garage and sell it to little kids, but I just do. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about a life of sinning. Otherwise, he gets in trouble, and the Holy Spirit would be contradicting himself, because take John. I think, I can't remember how many times I've counted it. In 1 John, five chapters, he that's born of God does not keep on sinning. What's the definition of sin? Mistakes? No. Involuntary, unknown breaches of God's law? No. He's talking about, well, I'll use John Wesley's definition, willful transgression of the known will of God. It's a deliberate, intentional, and conscious choice to disobey what is God's will for me. That's the kind of sin he's talking about. Jesus, more than once, go and sin no more. What kind of a sentence is that? If there is absolutely no way that we can avoid deliberate disobedience to God. Will we, are there failings and shortcomings? Yes. We're to keep our hearts humble and acknowledge them. It's like the Old Testament. They had a sacrificial system for 
unknown sins, failures, breaches of God's law that they were unaware of. God said, when you find it out, here's the offering that you have to make. There is John in 1 John says, it seems a strange passage of Scripture, but I don't, I don't think if we look at it, it's that strange. He said, if you see your brother as a Christian, if you see your Christian brother sinning a sin which is not unto death, pray for him and he will give him life. What's he talking about? Now you've got to remember this when you interpret Scripture. There are, there are people, of course, who believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. I don't care what you do. You're, you can't lose it. Well, they're going to interpret that in a very absurd kind of way. And I can show it to you. you know, lots of commentaries. Capital punishment. If you see your brother sinning a sin that calls for capital punishment, I say, don't pray for them. What? He's simply saying, in two statements, if you see your brother sinning a sin which is not unto spiritual death or severance from God, pray for him and God will cover that. And then he'll find out later and he'll be educated and grow in grace and whatever. Then the very next sentence he said, but if you see your brother sinning a sin which is unto death, he says, I do not say you should pray for that. Well, what's that mean? Don't ever pray for somebody? No. He's saying in this narrow case, if someone is sinning a deep breach willfully against God that will sever them if unrepented from God, don't pray that I grant them life because they, they've rebelled against me. Until they quit that and repent, I'm not going to cover it. But if it's a failure, it's a mistake, it may be, I remember a dear soul in my first church came out a just a rough as a cob background. And man, every other word was just not good. She got wonderfully saved. I know she did. She loved Jesus. Blundered around a lot trying to witness to people and tell her friends and probably drove half of them off. You know, she was just a bull in a china shop. And I prayed for her. Her, her language, now, the, you know, the taking God's name horrible, she quit that. But it was just very coarse, crude, not good. Um, and I felt, I got to talk to her. I just felt like God told me to leave her alone. Let me worry about it. So I just I prayed for her. I said, Lord, you hear her, and, and that's not the best witness, and please open her eyes. I can't remember how long it was, but she came in and talked to me. And she said, you know what? God's been kind of talking to me. Some of the speech I use and so is just not a real good example. 
Um, God put me out of a job. (laughs) Because he could do it better than I could. Not that we're not to move when we're prompted, say things when we're prompted. But God's pretty good at that. So that's what John was talking about. If you see a sin that's not unto death, but it's a failure, a flaw, and keep your eye on yourself, pray for that. Okay? Now, I have to hurry up, or this will be a, won't be an unknown sin to go over. Finally, let's, let's just go to James. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a remedy for the sinful nature. Subdued, yes. Underfoot, yes. Overcomable, yes, by the grace of God when I'm converted. It's conquered in conversion. But like a rebellious nation that is conquered... It doesn't mean that there isn't a subterranean rebellion still attempting to go on. It doesn't mean there isn't an undercurrent of rebellion against God. God, ultimately, is the greatest threat to our self-sovereignty because He demands total surrender. So what's the final remedy? crucify. There's two phrases that are used in the New Testament dealing with the sinful nature. Both of them rather ghoulish and grim. Circumcision. New Living Translation of Colossians talks about cutting away, he said, the sinful nature. Cutting away. And it says we're dead in the uncircumcision of the sinful nature, it hasn't yet been cut away. There's a cutting away that God wants to do. He did it on the day of Pentecost with the disciples. Purified, Peter said, our hearts are purified of the old double-mindedness. Like Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Facing Both Ways. Double-mindedness. There's a cure for it. How do we receive it? Simply by faith, but by death. Now, I don't mean physical death. There is a death that every one of us have to die to Dan Morgan. Die to my sovereignty. Die to my agenda and God's obligation to keep me happy. I'll just quit with this, close with this. I don't know, it's been a long time ago, but read, <clears throat> read just an excerpt of Billy Graham's testimony. God clearly called him to preach, marvelously gifted him um, that southern voice and everything. Um, soundly saved, knew it, preaching. But he said, and if I remember right, he used this phrase. He said, finally he came to the place where he recognized that he, Billy Graham, had to die. And he, he rented a room 
in a hotel away from everything. And I think the phrase he used was to have it out with God. Now, not, uh, he didn't mean conquer God, but he was at a crossroads. And he was very clear that he spent the day wrestling with God, like Jacob and the angel. But he said, I died. I died to Billy Graham being in the spotlight. I died to my agenda. I, I died to my will, my control, my way. That's God's strategy against the sinful nature. Because it's not subject to the law of God, never will be, it can't live. God's got to remove it, but he can. That's, that's where he wants to get every one of us as Christians. Then we are maybe a shapeless lump of clay but, clay, but at least it's clean. And he can make out of us what he wants without encountering little bits of rock and junk and alloy in the clay. He can mold me into what he wants. That's God's will for us. It's his good will for us. It is his will, even our sanctification, purification. I have to quit. I, this has become a known sin of going five minutes over. The nursery people will have their own issues with sin um, if we don't hurry up and quit. I want you to just let that soak in your heart. Use whatever helps you. Dan, if you'll come and dismiss with prayer. Father in heaven, you're good and we're grateful just to have a moment to sit quietly before you to listen to your voice speak to us. Prayed this morning we'd all have ears to hear, Lord. And individually, I pray for each person here this morning that we had ears to hear what you have to say to each one of us. Where we're at in this spiritual journey and in this walk, whatever that looks like, I just pray, Lord, that we are faithful, as faithful as you are to speak to us. May we be as faithful to be obedient to you. As our pastor was sharing this morning, a verse come to my mind, Lord, that I try my best to live by each and every day. But we have to have this moment where this has taken place. And this moment is a, is a command that the Apostle Paul gave us in the book of Romans in chapter 12 to offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. May we be willing to have that one-time experience and then each day living that experience out with the fullness of the Spirit in our own hearts. And may we do it by your grace because you give it to us, Lord, to enable us to live out this life to your glory. We love you. We praise you. May we get up and go for your glory today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.